you would turn in your Bible to Matthew 22 or in your worship guide to page 9. The passage is there also. We're in the same passage that we did last week, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. We're going to look at a different emphasis in this passage this week. All right, let's read it together, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to it. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Even those at home, I'd invite you to stand with us. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated, and let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that in this time, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so we are in uh, week two of a new series we're calling Purpose and Mission, and it's all about what is the purpose of the Christian life and what is the mission of the church. And we, as we talked about last week, just a, a, a reminder, um, the, what, the reason we're doing this, talking about purpose and mission, is not because... I'm trying to roll out or we're trying to roll out some new vision for our church. Not because, it's not because we're trying to change who we are. We're not trying to change who we are. We're not trying to roll out a new vision for our church. We're not trying to rebrand Hope Presbyterian. In fact, what we're trying to do is we're trying to recover an old vision for our church. We're trying to retrieve something that... Uh, that quite possibly, and, well, we have, might have drifted from. Uh, way back in the very early days of what we could call the church. Uh, do you know when the church started? It actually started way back with Adam and Eve, walking with the Lord, trying to love God and love one another. Way back in the very beginning, of the church with the first people who followed God. God gave them a purpose and God gave them a mission. But they decided to push away and do their own thing. And the purpose and the mission were lost. And the story of the Bible, the story of the whole Bible, is that uh, is, is a story of God restoring the purpose and mission to his people through his man, Jesus Christ, for the life of the world. That's what the Bible's about. God restoring purpose and mission to his people through his man, Jesus Christ, for the life of the world. And it's our hope here that the story of the Bible, God restoring purpose and mission to his people through his man for the life of the world, becomes the story of Hope Press. That's our hope. 
that Hope Presbyterian, the story of who we are as a church, what we're about, is about God restoring his mission and purpose to his people through his man for the life of the world. So that's what we're doing here. And the purpose, the purpose of the Christian life, the purpose of life that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden and that still stands as our purpose today, we find articulated in this passage by Jesus in Matthew 22. And that purpose, as we talked about last week, ultimately is to love God. To love God. One way to say it that's sort of famously uh, articulated in our confession of faith is that the chief end of man is to, do you know the rest of it? It's to know God and enjoy him forever, right? So that's what we're doing here, loving God. What Jesus shows us here in this passage is that that's the purpose. However, loving God is not something that happens in isolation. Loving God, when we're really doing it, when we're really living into our purpose, always comes with relational and communal implications. Loving God means loving other people. That's the big idea here. The mission, I mean, the purpose of our life that we'll learn here starting next week and over the weeks after that that fuels our mission as a church. But the ultimate purpose is to love God but that also means loving other people. So here in this passage, we have somebody that came up to Jesus, a, a lawyer who is part of the Pharisee group. We talked about last week, the Pharisees. Sometimes we paint them as the bad guys in the New Testament. Sometimes they were. Uh, but the Pharisees were, if we lived back in the days when Jesus was walking around, you know, teaching on hillsides and doing things in Jerusalem, uh, if we lived in that time, we would know the Pharisees as good people. These are stand-up folks. These people had good, they knew their Bibles, they, they, they taught God's law, they lived in a, in a way that was upstanding in their communities. These were people that folks looked to and trusted. But somebody from that group comes to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one thing we got to know? A.K.A., what is the purpose of life? And Jesus gives him the answer that we just read. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So the, that's the big idea. That's what we're talking about today. The purpose of life, the thing at the very foundation of who we are, the reason we're living is to love God, and that also means loving our neighbors. So there you go. That's the big thing. If, you need to, if you're bored already and you need to tune out, this would be a good time because we've already hit the big idea. We're just going to spend the rest of this time drawing out some implications, clarifying the big idea. So here's the question for the rest of our time. What does it mean, uh, let's see, I, I can't even read my own handwriting. <laughs> the big question for the rest of our time is, what does it mean that loving our neighbors is the second greatest commandment? That's the question. 
So remember, the Pharisee lawyer guy, the good religious guy, comes to Jesus and says, what's the most important thing? Jesus says, the first great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Jesus adds, oh, there's a second, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. So the big question is here, why, what does it mean that loving our neighbors, loving other people, is the second greatest commandment? Why did Jesus throw that in when that really wasn't part of the question? Why, uh, did, why is it so important? Uh, what's the deal? I think that if we took a poll uh, among people who live in our city, or say we, each one of us went out with a clipboard and we asked every single person we know, from school or from work or from the neighborhood or whatever, Christians or non-Christians, we went around and asked everybody, hey, um, is it really important that we love each other? Yes or no? Circle one. I'm pretty sure that maybe 100% or at least 99% of the responses we would get were people from all walks of life, from all that would say, yes, it's really important that we love one another, that we love our neighbors. I think it's human beings, we, at least it seems like most of us, know somewhere that love, loving each other is a good thing. We have songs about it, we have stories about it, we have TV shows and commercials about it. It's something we talk about all the time. It's good to love each other, right? So why does Jesus make such a big deal about it? Why does he talk about it like maybe this really good religious person who was employed as a lawyer for biblical law? Why does Jesus say, oh, you got to know the second thing also? What's the deal there? Okay, so that's the big question. And I have three things for the answer. Surprise. There's normally three things in these sermons. Have you noticed that? One day I'll do four or two, but... Today is three. Um, all right, here's the first thing. What's, what's the deal with Jesus's love your neighbor as the second great commandment? Uh, you need, here, here it is. You can't separate loving our neighbors from loving God. I believe that that was a huge message that Jesus is sending here to the lawyer and to us. We cannot separate loving our neighbors from loving God. Listen to the way this is worded. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I imagine that when Jesus said this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, that at that point the lawyer was nodding along. Yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe when Jesus got done with all your mind, the lawyer maybe was going to start to speak something back. Sort of like in the story we read a second ago from Luke 10. Uh, somebody else, a scribe, probably the same Pharisee group, comes up to Jesus and says, uh, you know, what's the most important thing? How do, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law. What does it say? And the guy recites this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, with all your mind. And Jesus says, yeah, that's the thing. So that love the Lord your God piece, that was something that was known. In fact, it's always been known among God's people that the most important thing you can do, the purpose of life, is loving God. So Jesus says it. But then before the guy can respond, before the guy can walk away, Jesus says, ah, and the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I believe that Jesus's point, speaking to this man in this time and in this place, was that you can't love God, really, if you don't love your neighbor. You can't separate the two things. The Pharisees were a group of people who uh, were re they took loving God really seriously. They were very, very, very religious. Uh, however, they separated themselves from other people. And they were even uh, known to be, hmm, how do I say this? Not just rude, but openly reject people who disagreed with them. That's one reason why in the story of the Good Samaritan, while they're talking, the guy goes, yes, but who is my neighbor, Jesus? Because the Pharisees had this ethic that God had called them to love other people like themselves, but not to love the masses. We see this play out in John 9. John 9 is a story about a man who was born blind, and he was living as a beggar beside the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And Jesus did a miracle where he healed the guy. And the Pharisees were ticked because they said, that guy is a sinner. Everybody knows that guy was born blind. He's been a sinner since birth. So the Pharisees had this idea that loving God was really important. But if you really love God, then you need to separate yourself from everybody that doesn't love God like you or everybody that's different than you or everybody that you think might be a sinner because you can't associate with them. They separated loving God from loving their neighbors. And what Jesus says here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and, and, before you walk away, before you answer, and love your neighbor as yourself. That would, have, that would have stuck out to that lawyer, and it should stick out for us. Folks, Jesus died on a cross in order to reconcile us to God. Died on a cross, bearing our sins, the sins of anyone who would believe in him, and then he rose from the dead so that we can be justified before God. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead so that we can be reconciled to God. However, there's so much more. Jesus didn't just die on the cross and rise from the dead so that you can be reconciled to God. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead so that we could be reconciled to God. God came in the purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' mission was to win a people, a people group, and us to God. There is no such thing as being reconciled to God without being renewed in our relationships to one another. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God was broken, right? But one thing we often forget is their relationship with God wasn't the only broken relationship after they sinned. Their relationship with each other was also broken. Immediately after their sin, this married couple, they were ashamed of their nakedness before one another. They were immediately ashamed of their own bodies. They immediately felt threatened and vulnerable in front of the other. 
And when God in Genesis 3 is talking about the consequences of their sin, he looks at Eve and he says in Genesis 3.16, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Intimacy between this married couple was broken. Desire became intermingled with domination. Their relationship with one another was broken because they sinned against God. And in the very next chapter in Genesis, Abel getting a fight and Cain kills Abel. And ever since then, in the history of humanity, people have been at war with other people. So when we sin, our relationship with God is not only broken, our relationship with other people is also broken. So when God comes to remedy sin by becoming one of us, by dying on a cross and rising from the dead, he doesn't just do that so we can love God. He does that so we can love God and be reconciled to other human beings. There is no loving God without loving people. And in case we forget, the God that we love is a God who became a human being himself. So why did Jesus make a, such a big deal about love your neighbors yourself? Why did he put it as the second thing in line with our great purpose statement as humanity? Well, one reason is because there is no such thing as loving God without loving other people. It doesn't exist. But we religious people are drawn to the idea, just like the Pharisees, that we can be right with God and at odds with everybody else. So, folks, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's another reason that Jesus makes it such a big deal about loving our neighbors, and it's this. We can't separate loving our neighbors from true religion. We can't separate loving our neighbor from loving God, and we can't separate loving our neighbors from true religion. Look at, the, look at verse 40. Jesus says, On these two commands, loving God, loving our neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. Now, in Bible times, uh, when, when a Jewish person talked about the law and the prophets, that was a way of saying the whole Bible. It was like a conversational idiom. Now, part of the Hebrew Bible, the law, that's the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, part of it is called the prophets, and that's like Isaiah and Habakkuk and all those prophetic literature. Part of it was called the writings, that would be like Psalms and Proverbs. So very often if somebody said the, the law, the writings, and the prophets, that was a way of listing out the parts of the Bible. But in Jesus' day, there was a shorthand version of that, especially when a rabbi would say, hey, the Law and the Prophets, that was a way of saying your Bible, everything your Bible says. So when Jesus says, love God, oh, 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 wait, also love your neighbor, and all the Law and the Prophets depend on these two commands. What Jesus is saying is that everything your Bible tells you to do Everything we believe, 
all good theology, our whole religious system depends on these two commands. Now that word depend that Jesus uses, in the Greek it's krimitai, and it means literally to hang. Maybe some of your translations say on these two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is using this word for a reason. He's using it as, an, uh, as a visual illustration, if you will. Everything the Bible teaches about what it means to know God and to love him and to be his people, all of it hangs on two commands, love God and love your neighbor. Now, I'm wearing a cardigan sweater, right? If I wanted to take this sweater off because I'm warm, and say, you know, I came home like Mr. Rogers, and you take off your cardigan to put on another one, right? Uh, and I wanted to hang this on something, I would have to hang it on a hook or a hanger, right? But what happens if I take off my sweater and I try to hang it on nothing? What happened to my sweater? It's on the ground. It's not hanging. It's, this, is, this is not where you want your sweater to be. So all the law and the prophets, your whole Bible, our whole religious system, hangs on a hook. And that hook is loving God and loving your neighbor. Okay, Charlie, I got it. That was fun. Now my sweater's dirty. It's okay. Uh, what do you mean by this? Well, let's talk a little bit about history. Um, two different historical references. You know, I don't know if you know this, but here in the United States, uh, we had institutionalized race-based slavery for hundreds of years. Did you know that? Of course, I'm being a little sarcastic. Of course we know that. That's the big blot on our nation's history. That's our... That's the story of our, that's the worst thing we've ever done, slavery. And we live today with, uh, with the repercussions and the effects of it. Well, when slavery was institutionalized in the American South, you know, we had some free states, which are in the North, and we had slave states in the South. Um, a lot of Christians, inspired by the, the great commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor, and uh, treating people as people who bear the image of God. Lots of Christians were against slavery. In fact, the reason slavery was abolished in America is largely because of the work of Christians that said, hey, this is against what the Bible teaches. But for the most part, especially in the South, especially in the tradition that we come from, Presbyterian tradition, Whenever somebody would stand up and say, excuse me, pastor so-and-so, excuse me, uh, church session, uh, excuse me, slavery is wrong. People are made in God's image. Jesus said the great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. We have to stop this. By and large, for the most part, the church's response, do you know what it was? Was this. Yeah, okay, 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 okay. Um, but see, God has called us to be a spiritual kingdom. He has given a spiritual mission to the church. The church is, the church is a spiritual organization. And this thing you're talking about, slavery, yeah, we could talk about, but that is a physical thing. That's a political thing. 
And the church doesn't, God doesn't call the church to engage with politics. We have a spiritual mission to save souls. So you need to take your politics somewhere else. And year after year after year after year after year after year, God's people, the church, in our tradition especially, looked out at the world that enslaved persons because of the color of their skin, that treated them like animals and like property. And they said, yeah, 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 but we have a spiritual mission, and it's to love God, and that's a political thing. And politics and spirituality don't mix. Folks, as a church here in America, that might be just about the worst thing that we have ever done. Because according to Jesus, there is no loving God without loving our neighbors. So, yeah, we have a spiritual mission. Proclaiming God's kingdom. Telling people about Jesus. Making disciples. But that spiritual mission always, 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 always has physical implications. With real people. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor if you turn a blind eye while they are suffering. History lesson number two. About 30 years, 30 or 40 years after slavery was legally abolished in the United States, there was a, a German Baptist pastor who was in New York in a bad neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen, which was a really poor neighborhood in New York. And he was trying to be a good pastor. He's trying to run his church and tell people about Jesus. But he kept running into the fact that he was ministering to people's spiritual needs while physically they were suffering. The guy's name was Walter Rausenbusch. And Walter Rausenbusch got very frustrated with trying to do this spiritual church thing while physical needs of people were being neglected. So he started working on the idea of how this could be remedied. And he developed an idea that came to be known as the social gospel. And the idea of the social gospel, according to Walter Rausenbusch, is this. Jesus didn't just come into the world uh, in order to set you free from your personal sins. In fact, that is way too narrow of a way to look at it. Jesus came in the world to confront the destructive structures and systems in society that push people down. So the gospel isn't you should repent, and you, or the plan of salvation isn't that you should repent and believe so that you could be saved. The plan of salvation is that we all together should work in order to turn society over so that everybody flourishes in their physical life. Rosenbush started to claim that that's what Jesus came to do. He drifted away from the historic and orthodox truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He downplayed that and changed it to Christ came in the world to better your economic and social and physical life systemically. Now, Rausenbush's ideas gained a very quick and fast following across the United States. One reason why they spread so swiftly was because so many people were frustrated with the Southern Reformed and Evangelical Church's response to slavery, which says, no, this is just a spiritual thing. 
people were so offended and frustrated by what our team had done that they looked at Rausenbush's idea that the gospel is this social phenomenon primarily, and they said, yes, that's what we want. And, and seminaries all across America, they started, they, they threw out the, the old-time gospel of being reconciled to God and one another and replaced it with this, we're just here to change society gospel. Except for some seminaries which held to orthodoxy, but it was a little complicated because the ones that were holding to orthodoxy, by and large, were the ones that still did not allow people of color to enroll in their schools. So, within America, within the church, a rift formed. In the early 20th century, the rift was called the modernist, fundamentalist controversy. Because Rausenbusch and his followers were saying they were modernists. The gospel is for society. And people who were committed to the, the orthodox biblical idea that God came to save sinners and that we can love God and love one another, they, they started saying, no, we need to stick to the fundamentals of the faith. And they started to be called, people called them fundamentalists because they stick to the fundamentals. And there was a big divide in America. Now, about the time of the civil rights movement, our team, theologically conservative, reformed people, whenever folks like Dr. Martin Luther King would stand up and speak and teach, very often in our churches, in our seminaries, people would say, yeah, but he doesn't, he's too committed to that social gospel idea. You know, his theology is a little liberal. Nobody considered the fact that maybe Dr. King's theology was a little liberal because he was not allowed to attend a conservative gospel seminary because the color of his skin. Critique started going from our camp to anyone who would say that the gospel has social implications. Our team started calling out, you're one of those Rousenbush people. You have thrown out the cross of Christ. You are denying the plan of salvation. Condemning it. When the reason that Rausenbusch's heterodox ideas even spread so far in the first place is because of the table that we had set with our, the church is just a spiritual kingdom. So, how does all this play out? Well, today in our churches, we have lots of churches who would say, you know what, the big idea here, the most important thing is that people can love God. That people can look to Jesus and be saved from their sins. That's the most important thing. A lot of people saying that. I, I would say that. But a lot of other people, a lot of other churches, maybe where some of our friends or family goes, say, yeah, 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 that's not as important. The big thing is that we uh, help the poor and that we get out there and do social good and that we serve our neighbors and that we uh, work for good health care. And both groups are like, separated by this division and both groups take shots at one another and our churches start to divide our this is why in the presbyterian world in america we have two big denominations one denomination that goes one way and another one that goes the other way and where they divide right down the middle you can almost draw a line and show where the emphasis is love god or love other people which one comes first so here's the big idea here. Folks, Hope Presbyterian. 
the idea that if we make a big deal about social action, or if we make a big deal about serving the homeless, or being welcoming to all people, or if we make a big idea of, at certain times, raising a voice in the political forum, if we do these things, then we are abandoning the gospel. That idea is not true. And it comes from brokenness in our own history that we helped to create. So let me just boil this down. Hope Presbyterian Church, people who call this your home, living into our purpose doesn't just mean loving God and doing true religion. It also means loving other people in order to do true religion. You can't separate loving our neighbors, working for their good, from Orthodox Christianity. There is no slippery slope that if we get out there and serve people, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, go liberal like Rosenbush. That doesn't exist. When God came into the world to save sinners, he did it by living a perfect, righteous life and then going to die a sinner's death on the cross to be raised from the dead. What kinds of things did Jesus do during his perfect, righteous life? He shared tables with prostitutes and tax collectors. He healed people's diseases. He spent time with the disabled community, with people who were rejected by religious folks. Do we do those things? We can't separate those things from true religion. So what's the big deal uh, with love your neighbor? We can't separate loving our neighbors from loving God. We can't separate loving our neighbors from true religion. And the times that we have, it's just made a giant, stinking mess. Um, and the last thing, we can't separate loving our neighbors from sacrificial service. The thing about the Good Samaritan story that the real punch of the story that we read earlier, the real kicker, is this guy comes seeking to justify himself before Jesus. He says, you know, they're talking about this great commandment thing, loving God and loving neighbor. And seeking to justify himself, he says, yes, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And the idea, that question is one I've even asked. In some ways, I ask this question privately in my own mind every time I drive by an outside tent city or camp of houseless people. Are these people my neighbors? What's my role in helping? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to interact with? Hoping that maybe God or whatever, uh, whoever answers me would say, Charlie, the, not everyone's your neighbor. You're only called to a certain people. In fact, you just do your work at Hope Presbyterian and you forget about everybody else. We all ask this question, who is our neighbor, Lord? Seeking to justify ourselves. So this guy asks Jesus this question. Jesus tells a good Samaritan story, right? And at the end, Jesus flips the who is my neighbor question around. And he said, now which person in the story proved to be, to be a neighbor, right? And then he says, the guy who, he won't even say the Samaritan. He says, you know, the guy who helped the other guy. Now, we come to Jesus asking, who is my neighbor? Because we want to be able to get free of the burden of having to help other people. And Jesus, like he did in the story of the Good Samaritan, every single time flips that around and says, 
Stop asking who your neighbor is and start asking who around you can you be a neighbor to? In that Good Samaritan story, part of its power is that, uh, you know, Jews, especially Pharisees and Samaritans, did not get along. They hated each other. And the, the neighborly person in the story, the good guy who helped, uh, was a Samaritan, which means he's helping a Jew, which means he had to cross racial lines, political lines, uh, social lines. And this would have been very offensive to the Pharisee. Also, in the story, the priest and the Levite, the good Jewish religious people, walked around the guy. That would have called out the Pharisee's hypocrisy. Folks, the gospel calls out our hypocrisy. And the gospel calls out our prejudice. And we can't come into church week after week and try to be people who love God if we turn a blind eye to the social problems that we, are all around us. If we ignore the houseless crisis in our city. If we ignore the race, racial prejudice and systemic racism and we just say, oh, those are political things. We can't do that anymore. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But he also came to bring new creation. So, we're out of time. Charlie, that was really heavy. <laughs> Folks, God has given us a purpose. He gave it to us in the Garden of Eden. To love God and love one another. And since then, we have been kicking against that purpose. But our story as the people of God is that God himself came into the world as a human being to restore that purpose to us and actually accomplish it so that as we try to live into loving God and loving our neighbors, we're doing something that Jesus has already mastered. Jesus is the love of God given to us. And Jesus is God's reconciling work in the world. God reconciles the world to himself, and he reconciles us to one another through Jesus. So following Jesus doesn't just mean loving God in a new way. It also means growing into a new kind of community together, a missional, outward-focused, healing community in the world. And those things together, loving God and loving our neighbors, that's why we're here. That's the purpose of life. Those are the two great commandments. Let's pray.